Uh, it was uh, early summer, 1979. I was still in the military. I was going to be discharged soon. Uh, Colette was not yet my wife. And she introduced me to a retired missionary from India. He and his wife had spent over 40 years in India. They had been, been retired for a few years now. He had been a missionary in India in what was then called Bombay area, now Mumbai. Uh, he was a missionary during the British occupation of India and also after Indian independence. He told me about the hunger and starvation there. And while there are multiple reasons for that, there was one key reason, and it was the Brahmin cattle. You may have seen pictures of a Brahmin cattle. They look a certain way. Over 90% of India practices Hinduism or comes from Hindu roots. In Hinduism, the Brahmin cattle is sacred. You cannot harm, much less kill, Brahmin cattle. And in fact, so revered are they in Hinduism that at train stations, the public square, different places, large sacks of grain are hung. It is forbidden for any person to touch them. You can't eat that grain, no matter how hungry you are. It is reserved for Brahmin cattle. Over the course of a week, Brahmin cattle, just one of them, will eat the equivalent of 21 adult men. No matter how many people starve to death, the Brahmin cattle are fed. They're sacred. From this story comes a saying that you may have heard. And maybe you never knew what the origin is with Brahmin cattle and Hinduism. But that saying is, sacred cows make the best hamburger. And so today... I want to serve up, at least in part, at different points in the message, I am going to serve up for you sacred cow. Ground up. 70% meat, 30% fat. It'll be the tastiest sacred cow you ever had. Some of these are going to be big burgers, six and eight ounces. Some will just be sliders, you know, three or four bites, and you're done with a slider. Maybe two. Some of this sacred cow, all of us will shake our head. and Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. Others, I might step on your toes a little. Hopefully gently. But we want to think biblically about the church and the local church, how we gather together and what we do when we gather together. We'll have yet a future message on the mission and ministry of the local church. But for now, we want to focus on the local church in general, 
and then the leadership of the local church as a segue into what our brother Gilson will be preaching on next week, the qualification of elders. The title of today's message, just like last week, is The Church and the Churches. I didn't make that up. Somebody wrote a book by that title. And this phrase has been used by many, many different people. This is part two. What do the words church, church, and churches mean? Just a little review. We need to understand this in case someone didn't hear last week's message. I can't do the whole message. But we should know that whether we're talking about the universal church or the local church, the word church literally means called out or called out once. The way the word is used is more important. The word church is used in the ancient Greek language of an assembly or gathering of individuals for a particular common purpose, whether it be political, to discuss matters and to vote, whether it be secular, or whether it be religious. Now, when I say religious, I know Christianity is not simply a religion. That's external Pharisaism. It's a relationship with God and Christ. But when I use religious here in this context, when we gather together as a local church, it's not primarily for social reasons. It's not primarily to discuss how our favorite Boston or New England sports team is doing. It's not to share golf tips. We don't gather for political purposes to debate the pros and cons of the two main parties in our country. We don't gather for political or secular or even social reasons. We gather for religious reasons to worship God and Christ. So that's how I'm using the word religious, just to be clear. The title was The Church and the Churches. What we're really talking about is the universal church and the local church. We had a whole message last week on the universal church. And, and a number of you told me how much clearer that idea is now on what the universal church is. So let me just once again review very quickly what is the universal church. The universal church is a distinctly New Testament phenomenon. It did not exist in the Old Testament. It did not exist in the Gospels. How do we know this? Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answered. Some say John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Christ said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, his Hebrew name, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, you shall now be called Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of truth, that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God, and upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, I have built my church in the past. 
He didn't say, I am building. I'm in the process of building my church, the present. He said, I will, yet future, when Christ uttered those words in Matthew 16. According to many New Testament scholars, the church was born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The universal church began then, and it will exist until the Lord comes to snatch up his church from the earth. So at no point in time has the entire universal church been on the earth. The apostles were certainly part of it, but they have long since died. In no single location, soon after the commencement of that church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, has the entire church existed even at the same time in one distinct location. It's universal. So that's what the universal church is. Every true believer in Christ who trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and what he's done on the cross, every true believer from Acts chapter 2 until that future day when Christ comes to rapture or snatch up his church. That is the universal church. Christ is the head of that universal church. He, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. When we looked at our second series on thinking biblically, we had three messages on who we are in Christ. We learned that we are Christ's bride. The church is Christ's bride. The church is Christ's body, and the church is Christ's building, a holy temple. And we are living stones in that temple. Here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul uses the body analogy. And Christ is head. And we learned that direction comes from the head. He's head of the body, the church. That's what the universal church is. It's his body and he is the head. But what is the local church? What is the local church? The local church isn't localized in space and time. Here in Somerset, in the 21st century, we are a local church, a local expression of the body of Christ. Many things that are true of the universal church are true of the local church. But there's a few distinctions, things that were only true of the early universal church in the first century and have not been true of any local church for over 1,900 years. The local church is a localized expression. Here, it's in Somerset, it's Grace Gospel Church, and it's all those who are gathered here this morning. We are an expression, a manifestation, an example of the universal body of Christ. There's more than one local church, as our brother Joe read for us in Revelation. Verse 17, Revelation 1. Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and I was dead and I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And he'll name those churches, and then in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, seven letters or epistles are written to those churches. 
All of these churches were in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. This is not to say that those are the only churches in existence. We read about a number of other local churches in the book of Acts. But these were all in one geographical area. Some of the earliest churches planted by Paul the Apostle. And these are the seven churches. Don't think that it's limited to just seven, because even in the book of Acts, it was not limited to seven. And not all seven of these are mentioned. Now I'm going to serve us up some nice sacred cow. And I don't think this is going to step on anybody's toes here. What about the nominations? What about the nominations? This is going to be a strange message in some ways. You all know who have heard me before, I stick very close to the scriptures to show you exactly what the scriptures say. So, if I grab my Bible and I start flipping through the pages in the New Testament to find you something about the nominations, I'm not going to find anything at all. I don't have anything biblical to tell you about the nominations. They're not there in the New Testament. My personal belief is that as Christians, we should follow the scriptures as close as possible. The scriptures are sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. And that my practice of my Christian faith, both in my personal walk and collectively as a church, should follow what scripture has in it as close as possible. Whenever feasible, follow it as close as possible. We know from the teachings in the New Testament that we are all one in Christ. We see no divisions amongst believers other than location in different local churches because they were sometimes hundreds or even a thousand miles apart. We don't see arbitrary divisions in Scripture. It wasn't long after the death of the Apostle John, or John the Apostle, excuse me, around 95 AD, that error started to become more and more prevalent, and churches deviated from the pattern of the New Testament church during the time of the Apostles. Denominations are one of those. They would occur centuries later. But they're not found in the New Testament. My personal feeling is that we should not have them. They violate the intent and the, uh, the intent of Scripture and what Scripture does say about the church. There should not be denominations, nor should there be denominational hierarchy. If there's no denominations, there's no denominational hierarchy. What is denominational hierarchy? Well, a local church might have a pastor or elders, but they're answerable to a diocese or to a synod. They're answerable to others, men in authority usually over a larger geographical area. 
They may even have to contribute finances to the support of that diocese or synod. And then dioceses and synods are sometimes tied together into one central location, sometimes into one central human figure. This is totally foreign to the New Testament. You will find nothing like that in the New Testament. The closest you'll find is a negative example in 3 John. He talks about a man named Diotrephes who exerted authority, one man, over everyone in the local church at Ephesus to whom John was writing. And he says, I am going to rebuke that man to his face when I come. That's the closest example you'll find of, of any kind of authority structure of that nature. So, how do you want your sacred cow burger? You want mustard, ketchup, relish on it? How do you like that one? That, that's pretty tasty, I think, for most of you. I haven't stepped on anybody's toes. Most of you knew there was no teaching about denominations found in the New Testament. There were no denominations in existence. We want to think biblically about the local church and local church autonomy. Autonomy just means self-rule, self-governance. In the New Testament, every local church was answerable to itself. The leadership of the local church, in accordance with the teaching of scriptures, got the church, uh, guided the church, and the church conducted itself autonomously in accordance with the scriptures. You didn't have one local church peering in over the shoulders of the, of the saints at the other local church and saying, aha, aha, you shouldn't be doing that. I don't do that regarding other local churches. It's not my job to do that. Oh, they practice differently than we do at Grace Gospel Church. They have this, or they have that, or they don't have this. They're not my problem. They are not the flock that God has entrusted to the elders here to shepherd. Every local church is autonomous. It doesn't answer to anyone else except the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he's revealed his will in the scriptures. Oh, but Paul, uh, uh, didn't the church at Antioch send Saul and Barnabas, not just with a gift, but uh, send them to the apostles and elders at the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to resolve a matter? Yes, they did. But notice what that started from. The elders at the church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to present the gospel that they were preaching and to get feedback on it. The church of Jerusalem didn't peer in and say, hey, we're a bunch of apostles, we're the first church, we have the most experienced elders, uh, let's look and see what the church at Antioch is doing. That's not the way it happened. It started with the church of Antioch autonomously deciding, on their own deciding, let's get the advice of James, the Lord's half-brother, the apostles, and the elders, and see if they agree with us. 
That doesn't violate autonomy. We can go to other churches if we have a question, especially if the elders are divided on something and just can't come to agreement. We can ask advice of others. But we will never stick our nose into the affairs of another local church without being asked. Every local church is autonomous. And there's your second six-ounce sacred cow burger. Every local church is autonomous, and we don't try to rule over other local churches. We want to look at the offices of the local church. Because there are offices. And it's not just because in this country a local church might be incorporated per the laws of the, of the IRS, of the federal government, and the state in which it resides. We have offices, but we don't have corporate officers on the spiritual level. We have offices, but not officers in the same sense as a secular corporation does. There are three offices in the local church. Most of the time, if I ask somebody, how many offices are there in the local church? They'll say two, elders and deacons. And they're right, those are. But there's three. There's the head. The same individual who is head of the universal church is the head of every local church. That's one of the similarities between the universal church and the local church. Here's two things which are often offices in some churches and in some denominations, but they are not offices as far as the teaching of the New Testament Scripture. I touched on this verse very lightly last week. I want to go into it a little more in depth this morning. From Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is using a building analogy here. A building. Not the bride analogy, not the body analogy, but the building analogy. Notice all the building words that he uses. And notice that they're in the singular, not plural. You are of God's household, not households, built on the foundation, not the foundations. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, not cornerstones, in whom the whole building, not buildings, it's singular, is growing into a holy temple, not holy temples in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling, not dwellings, of God in the Spirit. There is only one building. Here, in the first three chapters of Ephesus, Paul is writing about the universal church. He does touch a little lightly in chapter 4 on one aspect of the universal church, but he starts to address, beginning in chapter 4, how believers individually... Therefore, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you are called, is the way Ephesians 4 starts out. But he quickly brings in other aspects that involve the local church. He says, be patient and show forbearance to one another. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's clearly talking about Christian interaction. And for many Christians in those days, 
the only interaction they had was on Sundays. The ancient church, during the time of the apostles and, and afterwards, met all day long from around sunrise to sunset on a Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and even into the evening. That was the only time they could meet together. They made it an all-day event. They even shared a meal together called a love feast or an agape feast. The only time they met together was on Sundays. Clearly, it is the local church that is part of the focus in chapter 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But here in chapter 2, he's talking about the universal church. And here's just a sacred cow slider. So many people make a mistake and they think of this as talking about the local church instead of the universal church. He's talking about the universal church here. I may have misspoken a moment ago. There is only one foundation. You know, we admire the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he used metaphor and analogy and parables to communicate spiritual truth. We think he did a great job, a perfect job. We can't improve on those. The Holy Spirit's no different. Here he inspires Paul to use an analogy of a building. Now, I know there's at least one man here who's heavily involved in construction. But I think all of us are familiar enough with construction to know that when you're building something, whether it be a house, an office building, a skyscraper, what do you lay first? The foundation is, sure, you might dig out if you're going to have a basement, but ignore that. There's no basement in this. You lay the foundation. And how many foundations does the building have? One. We don't lay the foundation, erect some walls, lay down a floor, some more walls. Oh, let's put another foundation there. That, that would be a very poor analogy that the Holy Spirit uses here through Paul's pen if that's the way a building was with multiple foundations. In fact, notice what's key to that foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone of the foundation laid down in ancient building. It had to be perfectly square. If it wasn't perfectly square, the building would be skewed. If there's more than one foundation, then there must be more than one cornerstone. And the reason why he's the cornerstone is because he died and rose again. How many times did Christ die and rise again? Once. How many cornerstones are there? One. How many foundations are there in this holy temple? One. What's the foundation composed of? The apostles and prophets. They were part of the universal church. Because the universal church had them in the first century, the universal church today has them. Because we're part of the universal church. The local church may not have them. And in fact, if you look in the New Testament, every local church did not necessarily have a resident apostle, even during the lives of the apostles. 
They may have been planted or started by an apostle, but an apostle was not permanently resident at every local church. There may not have been prophets per uh, resident at all local churches. We know, the, we know the apostles were prophets, and we know the church at Corinth had prophets, and the church at Caesarea had four prophetesses, Philip's daughters. But not every local church had prophets either. This is part of the foundation. They are not offices in the local church. They are part of the foundation of the universal church. And because he gave them to the universal church over 1,900 years ago, he's given them to the universal church. Don't confuse the universal church and these two key roles, apostles and prophets. Don't confuse the universal church with the local church. Remember I said there were some similarities, but there's also some differences. The first office of the, of the local church that we want to look at is the head. And this will be quick because we've covered most of the head aspect under the universal church. And what is true of the head of the universal church is true of the head, or should be true of the head, in every local church. Christ is the head of every man comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and every woman. See, the, the passage that I didn't include in the previous verse says, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of every man. Is God your head? It says, God is the head of Christ. What? God doesn't have any headship over you and I just because it doesn't say God is also the head of every man? No, clearly if God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man, God too is over man. He is the head of every man. Hence, Christ is also the head of every woman as well is the way I reason this. Christ is the head of every man and woman who names the name of Christ, who says they are a Christ follower, a Christian, who has trusted in Christ's work of salvation on the cross. Christ is the head of every local church. In Ephesians chapter 4, he begins to transition into the individual believer, commands on how the individual believer should live their life, and also things that should be true when Christians come together to meet. In about verse 4 of uh, Ephesians 4, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Clearly, that's more than just your own personal walk. I mean, I'm always united with myself. Okay? It's, the difficulty becomes being at peace sometimes with others. Here's what he says about Christ being the head of every local church, until we, plural, we, plural, all attain to a mature man. As a result, we are no longer to be children, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head. Do you see the plural aspect there? It's not talking about the local church, the singular, the building. 
the holy temple, the dwelling. There is a plural aspect there, and yet he leverages off of what is true of the universal church, that Christ is the head, and he applies it to each and every local church. In the verses that our brother Joe read for us, the seven golden lampstands that Christ walked in the midst of, he's right there. Do you know, he's, in a sense, walking in our midst this morning. As we gather together, he is here with us. Imagine that. We see that in the scriptures and with the eyes of faith trusting that what the scripture says is true. You and I don't get to decide what his church should look like or what his church should do. He's there. He is the Lord of the church. He doesn't check with me. You know, Paul, is it okay if I do this with my church, with my lampstand? He doesn't do that. Good for him because he'd get a lot of wrong answers from me, no doubt. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. He's right there in the midst. The local church is his holy temple. We're growing into a dwelling of God in the spirit. We want to look at the elders of the local church. Where do elders come from? What are the elders? We're going to understand a lot more, Lord willing, next Sunday after our brother Gilson preaches. And we're going to have another message on elders as well, Lord willing, after that. Before we look at the elders, I want to look at some distinctions and key concepts. My personal belief is that when Scripture uses words in a certain way, we ought to use those words in the same way that Scripture does. Paul Johnson doesn't get the right to redefine biblical terms the way he wants to use them. We need to stick as closely to biblical usage to avoid confusion. Otherwise, so many false ideas about the Scriptures and about the New Testament church and how we should practice and gather as a local church, so many false ideas creep in. Our words sound biblical because we're using biblical terms, but we're using them in a way that the New Testament never uses them. So I want to look at four key concepts. And these are going to be like sacred cow sliders, little tidbits, because I know you're getting kind of full on sacred cow burgers. So these are little sliders. Here's the four main concepts that I want us to learn to distinguish. We need to be very careful. When we don't distinguish these four from one another, we start to believe and introduce false teaching into our understanding of the church and how we practice church. The first is you can use the word roles, or you can choose to use functions or ministries. I like the word roles, but if you don't, you can use the others. We'll talk about each of these in just a little more detail. Titles. You want to talk about titles? 
Titles are not roles. Titles are not gifts. Titles are not offices. We want to look just very, very briefly at spiritual gifts and at the offices of the local church, which we already said were the head, elders, and deacons. Deacons will cover in a separate message. So let's look at roles, functions, and ministries. What are these? Apostles and prophets were roles or functions given to the universal church. In Ephesians chapter 4, going back to verse 7, he's talking about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the results that came out of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he would give gifts. Here, it is not spiritual gifts. That's covered elsewhere in Scripture. Here, these individuals functioning in their roles are his gift to the church. It's gifted individuals given as gifts to the church. Read the context starting in verse 7, and this is so clear. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Four categories here, not five. The word some as introduces each of the categories. There's four of them. We know that not only was there the role or function of an apostle, but we know that there was the spiritual gift of being an apostle in 1 Corinthians 12. Not only was there the role or function of being a prophet, there was the spiritual gift of being a prophet. Evangelists, I don't recall that it's listed as a spiritual gift, but I think it's safe to assume that it is. And then the last one is a combination category. You can think of it in two ways. And some as pastors hyphen teachers, a dual role pastor teacher there's some who take it that way that it's not pastors and teachers it's one role combined pastor teacher but there's another way to take it and it's perfectly fine according to the original greek language in which paul was writing and some as pastors that is teachers or pastors that is to say teachers the word pastor is not a special theological term. It is the literal Greek word for shepherd. You could translate this and some as shepherd teachers. Some as shepherd teachers. In fact, that word for pastors is the exact same word that Christ used. I am the good shepherd. I am the good pastor. He's the good pastor, the great pastor, the chief pastor. It means shepherd. And that's really, if I were to translate it back in seminary, I would use the word shepherd. And it would be perfectly fine. And it'd be a whole lot clearer than using the word pastor, which has a lot of extra biblical baggage associated with it. These are roles and functions. They're not offices, they're not titles. 
They do have spiritual gifts associated with that role. That's how they're able to function in that role. They are roles or functions. Now, titles. You know, I can't show you very much in the way of titles in the New Testament. We're very, very big on titles, aren't we? We love titles. Titles do serve a good purpose sometimes for identification. But often it is the sinful pride in the heart of man that wants titles. In fact, we often, it slipped out of my mouth once already this morning. It sometimes slips out. I said the Apostle John. Do you know never once does John use that of himself? Never once does Paul call himself the Apostle Paul. Never once does Peter call himself the Apostle Peter. Do you know that? Never once is apostle used as a title. Nor is prophet, nor is elder, nor is deacon. They're never, ever used as titles in the New Testament. What does Paul say? He calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus and an apostle. He doesn't call himself the apostle. Writing to the Philippians, he says, Paul, an apostle. He never says the apostle Paul to the elders and deacons at Philippi. Paul, an apostle. That's not a title. Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle. It's never used as a title. I believe that's important because... You know, we all love stories, whether it be one we read or one we see on the screen, and we love heroes. We have this natural tendency to want to have heroes and to look to heroes. And when we start to use titles, we tend to elevate people, put them on a pedestal, have them as our hero, as our focal point. Brothers and sisters, we need to set our sights higher than any human leader. We need to look to the head, Jesus Christ. We need to look straight up. You want titles? Use the same title. Uh, use the same term that Paul used of himself. You want to use it as a title? You want to give me a title? Slave Paul. Okay? Slave. That's it. Christ is the Lord. I am his slave, according to the scriptures. Oh, you don't like that because it sounds demeaning? Then use the title that we can all share with one another. Brother and sister. If that's how we want to address someone. Look, in Christ, we are all equal. Paul makes that abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 12. Because the hand is not an eye, is it any less the part of the body? Should it say, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye? No, every part is equal. They all have equal value and worth in God's sight. Spiritual gifts, these are divine enablements for service. The two main passages are Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And that's all I want to say about those gifts now. And then the offices. Again, the head, the elders, and deacons. We've discussed the head. We've looked at 
We'll look at deacons, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Let's look at the elders. The elders are the leadership, according to the New Testament, of the local church. The key word there is leadership. I'll explain that a little more fully. But first, I want to give you five more sacred cow sliders. When we think biblically about local church leadership, there are five different paradigms or models that are used in Bible-believing and even non-Bible-believing local churches, liberal churches. But even conservative evangelical churches have one of five models. Four of those models are found nowhere in the New Testament. I can't point to a chapter or verse, and I would challenge anyone to point to a chapter or verse for any of the first four on this list. I don't have time to go into them in detail uh, because we're going to have a members meeting, so we need to end a little earlier. But the first four, congregation ruled, deacon board ruled, pastor ruled, and elder ruled, are not found in the New Testament. What is found in the New Testament over and over again is elder-led. And that's a very fine and important distinction between elder rule. There's only one person who rules over the local church, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his spirit in accordance with the scriptures. The saints are sometimes likened to sheep. The elders to shepherds. You don't rule sheep. We don't have a spiritual cattle prod that we zap saints with. You don't zap sheep like that. Cattle need that. But believers in Christ are to be sheep. Christ said this, I, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. When elders voice the voice of Christ, when their words are scriptural, the sheep will naturally follow. They want to follow the voice of the great shepherd through his under-shepherds, through those who shepherd the flock. Elder-led is the paradigm for church governance. In other words, those in fellowship at the local church must want to be led by the elders in accordance with the scriptures. Elders existed very early in the churches, Acts chapter 11 takes place around 45 A.D., about 15 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, the church at Antioch wants to help their brothers and sisters in Christ far away in Jerusalem, at the church of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 29, and in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. There was a famine there. History records that that occurred in 45 AD during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Elders existed very early on. If elders were not part of the church, you had Paul and 11 other of Christ's apostles alive. Not one of them objected to elders. Not one of them wrote against elders or preached against elders. In 45 AD, 
churches already had elders. Elders early on were appointed in the churches. In Acts 14, this takes place around four, three or four years later, 48 or 49 A.D. in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas had gone out on Paul's first missionary journey. They planted some churches, and then they went back around and appointed elders after they had preached the gospel in, in that city, one particular city, and made many disciples they appointed elders there, and then they went around to the other churches that they had previously planted and appointed elders in every city. Paul the Apostle appointed elders. Elders clearly were part of the leadership of the early church. You'll see no one else involved in the leadership of the early church except the apostles who planted them and the elders they appointed. Elders are raised up by the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 20. Now, this takes place, uh, the latest would be around 57 AD. Paul had spent altogether three years, not continuously, but three years in Ephesus. It was the longest he stayed anywhere, the second largest city of the Roman Empire. Perhaps around a half a million people lived there at that time, around 60 A.D. And we read in Acts 20, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him who? Who did he call to himself? The elders of the church. So this is who he called, this is who he's going to speak to. And when they, the elders, had come to him, he said to them, he gave them a charge, he gave them a command. He said, be on guard for yourselves, and for the whole flock. Notice the sheep reference. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Who are the overseers? The elders. They're the same individuals. 20 years after the death of the Apostle John, we know from ancient writings that already men were trying to make a separation between elders and one overseer in every church who would later become called the pastor. Overseers are elders. And what are they to do? What is the work, the duty they're to do? They are to shepherd or to pastor the church. Pastor or shepherd is what they do. It's not a title. It's not an office. It's not a spiritual gift. But elders are raised up by the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? When it comes to specific examples in the local church, elders are to be recognized by those in fellowship at the local church. A man doesn't step up and say, I'm one of your elders. Follow me. That's not the way it works. It's up to you all who fellowship here at Grace Gospel Church to recognize individuals who with no title, no fanfare, are doing the work of an elder, shepherding, feeding the sheep, teaching them, protecting them from error, counseling them, warning them, exhorting them, admonishing them, as it says in this translation. 
And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace with one another. It's interesting that he's got to say that, because so often, as many of you who are here before I was know, sometimes the sheep don't want to be at peace with those who labor and who are over them in the Lord. But it's up to the church to recognize those who are elders. If you see someone doing the work of an elder who's teaching God's word diligently, maybe in a home study, uh, that, that's exemplifying Jesus Christ by the way they live their life, if you feel they should be formally recognized as an elder of Grace Gospel Church, bring their name forward. Tell one of the elders so we know who it is you see as someone who is worthy of shepherding this church in the name of Jesus Christ. Elders are to lead, not rule. Remember those who led you. doesn't say who ruled you. Again, sheep are led. Cattle are driven. Remember those who led you. And who were those who led you? Who spoke the word of God to you. Who fed you with spiritual food. Remember those who led you. Nowhere will it say elders are to rule. Elder rule is not a biblical pattern or model of church leadership. Elder led. But elders are to be obeyed and submitted to. In the same chapter, 10 verses later, the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. Look, that's the key. If there is someone who's been recognized as an elder and he is not keeping watch over your soul, if he stands on his own authority instead of the authority of God's word, I do not think you'd necessarily need to obey and submit to that individual. You should never, ever hear out of the mouth of anyone who's been recognized as an elder, I want you to do this, and you must do it because I'm an elder. Don't argue with me. I'm an elder. You should never, ever hear that out of the mouth of anyone. I've heard it from one elder, and I, not to me. I was an elder as well. I had to take him aside privately and talk to him and he apologized to the brother afterwards. He was a humble man. Elders have no authority in and of themselves. An elder only has authority when he stands on God's word and tells you, this is what God's word says, and we ought to be doing this or we ought not to be doing this because of God's word. And then when an elder does that, our job is to obey them and submit to them. Why? Because we're really obeying and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're really doing. He is the head. Elders just lead people along the path that the head has already laid out in Scripture. So this morning, are you thinking biblically about the local church? You know, there's a lot of sacred cow here. 
And I wish we had time to go into more of it more. But I, I want you to see that we should think biblically about everything. We should love to do what the Lord wants us to do. Look, let me just close with this saying. I, I've mentioned it before, but it's appropriate here as well. God's work done God's way by God's people using the resources God provides brings God's blessing. You take out any one of those four and God's blessing doesn't necessarily follow. God's work done God's way. How do we know God's way? The scripture. By God's people for God's glory brings God's blessing and using the resources God provides. Let's think biblically about the local church. If you have any questions, because this is so new to so many of you, please see me afterwards. You might be here this morning gathering with the local church, but maybe you're not part of a local church. Maybe you're not part of Christ's universal church either. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and the work of salvation that he accomplished on the cross when he bore the sins of the world, bled and died, then you can never be part of the universal church or truly be part of the local church. Only those who are true believers in Christ, who are part of his body, using that body analogy, can truly be part of a local church or the universal church. I urge you to trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for salvation. And before I pray, let me just say that we're going to take a 10-minute break and then we're going to gather back in here for our members' meeting. So let me pray quickly. And then you're all dismissed. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for the preciousness of your word. And Lord, we thank you for the detail and concern you had in your word to lay things out for us so that we would know not only how we should live our life individually in a way that will bring you honor and glory, but how we should live together as a local church and how we should practice our Christian faith when we gather together. Oh, dear God, we confess to you that, that we all have pride to some degree and, and, and maybe, uh, Lord, uh, some of what we've heard this morning troubles us. It's not anything we've ever heard before. It's not anything we've ever seen in Scripture before. And we want to do things our way. We confess that to you. We all do. At times, I know I do, Lord. But please, dear God, continue to be patient with us. Continue to work with us. Convict us of your truth and the importance to love the church as you loved the church and gave yourself up for it. Help us to love your church in the exact same way you do, Lord, and in accordance with the instructions you have given in your word. We ask all this for your glory.